Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, let's look at two completely different destinations from the Caribbean to the Middle East, Jamaica and Jordan. We'll start the hour with travel author Oliver Hill. He'll introduce us to the vibrant island nation of Jamaica. Whatever your idea of a perfect vacation is, you can get in Jamaica because it's such a mature tourist economy. From Rastafarians and reggae music to waterfall zip lines and snorkeling with dolphins, Jamaicans find a way to enjoy the good things of everyday life. And that's what makes their small island a big league tourist destination. Later in the hour, my Turkish friends, Ton and Lolly from Istanbul, tell us why they've started leading tours to Jordan. Imagine discovering the well-tended remains of mystical ancient desert cultures and places you know from the Bible, all ready to explore in a welcoming modern Middle Eastern society that comes complete with an American-born queen. Stay with us for the hour ahead as we find great travels in small packages. This time it's Jamaica and Jordan on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. For a small island, Jamaica boasts a distinctive accent and personality. Visitors discover right away how eager and able Jamaicans are to show off their remarkable home. Oliver Hill has updated the Moon Handbook to Jamaica, and he joins us in a moment from his home base in Mexico City with a visitor's guide to this much-loved Caribbean island. And later in the hour... We'll find out why travelers to the Middle East are just raving about Petra and the hospitality they find from the Dead Sea to the Red Sea in the modern nation of Jordan. Today's show is brought to you by the letter J and the joy of travel to Jamaica and to Jordan. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, let's go to Jamaica. I'm joined by Oliver Hill, and Oliver writes the Moon Handbook to Jamaica. Oliver joins us by phone from Mexico City, where he works. Hey, Oliver, thanks for joining us. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Everybody's got images of Jamaica. Paint me a a Jamaican dream and include in it some exotic fruits, uh, bathing in waterfalls, and bird watching. Well, Jamaica really is uh, paradise on Earth for a lot of reasons. Obviously, there's strife and there is economic problems, and that's what most Jamaicans probably face on a daily basis. But for a foreigner like me to come to Jamaica and be able to experience it, you know, the best way possible, and I have experienced, you know, the range of options available for a visitor, it's, to me, it's the best things in Jamaica are are free. You know, they're the, the beautiful sunshine, the beautiful people, the beautiful beaches, waterfalls, nature. Basically, there's lush mountains and dry savannas, and it's amazing that you find so many different kind of subclimatic zones in, in one small island. So it's one island, uh, roughly, uh, what's the size of it in the population? Uh, Jamaica is uh, 150 miles long by 50 miles wide at its widest point. So it's never more than four hours to go anywhere on the island by car. You can be based in one place, but then do a lot of day excursions around the island and and get to really see all the different zones and different attractions. Do most people rent a car when they visit? I think most people still visit with these all-inclusive packages or directly with a hotel, and then they have their transportation provided for them, which, from an environmental perspective, you know, might not be that bad that there aren't a lot of New Yorkers that are running around with cars. 
especially since you drive on the other side, and that that can be an issue if you're not used to it. And people drive, you know, very fast, and and that can be a problem, especially when you're not used to driving on the other side of the road. It can be scary for people. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that that people go to these all-inclusives and and use the transportation provided by their hotels. But obviously, there's great advantages to to having the freedom of movement. And I guess that's why, as Americans, we all love cars. When you're traveling around, whether you take a tour or whether you go on your own, it sounds like there's there's sort of two parallel cultures. There's the the hard struggling reality of the local people, and then the sort of hedonistic, you know, jet setter beach resorts and this sort of thing. How do you um, get a fair balance? I mean, you want to go there and have your fun in the sun on the beach. On the other hand, you want to be sensitive to the local culture. What are your uh, considerations in that regard? Like anywhere, I don't think it's like that at all. I don't think you can say it's just two parallel cultures. I think we, wherever we are, we create our own reality. And I think even the the people who might be in dire straits economically, you know, living hand-to-mouth from one day to the next and not really having any savings or maybe not even having a bank account, some of these people live better lives than than I do, you know, making a decent salary and traveling and, you know, the pressures of modern life sometimes don't justify, you know, what we go through to live it. So you might be a Jamaican and live in Kingston and live in a shantytown and and you've always grown up with uh, very humble means, but you might enjoy life, you know, more than the next person. And then at the same time, you have places like Portland in in Jamaica's um, northeast corner, where to me it's, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I could live there, I think, for next to nothing and be happy. I mean, it's one of those idyllic scenarios. Wow. Now, in your book, you say uh, Jamaica, where preachers, religious, musical, and political, lend vibrancy to everyday life. Uh, what do you mean by that, where preachers lend vibrancy in, in different realms, religious, musical, and political? Well, basically, Jamaicans are never afraid to express their viewpoint. In fact, that's one of the most attractive things about the Jamaican culture to me, is that people are very blunt. And, you know, if somebody's short, they'll call them short. And if they're tall, they'll call them tall. And if they're fat, they'll call them fat. And if they're skinny, they'll call them mager or something. You know I mean? And, and it's not to insult people. It's just to, to recognize reality. And, and to me, like I said, it's one of the most interesting things and, and attractive things about the culture is it's, it's very honest. And so Jamaicans are, are never afraid to express themselves and their viewpoint. And that's why a lot of foreign visitors arriving in Jamaica kind of misinterpret the fervor, the the strength of the Jamaican people as being aggressiveness. Hmm. And and if you're in a heated conversation, yeah, somebody from the U.S. might think you're fighting, but it's just it's this way of expressing yourself. So there's a, a vibrant sort of political discussion going on then, I would imagine. Well, politics, I mean, I just completed this documentary a few years ago called Coping with Babylon, which basically focuses on the Rastafari culture, and Rastafarians are, are very political. And I guess you could say Jamaicans are, are very political, but not in the sense of having a two-party system, which they do. But for so many years, the People's National Party was in power, and it just changed uh, You know, after the whole legacy of Edward Siaga. It was only this past year that the, the JLP, Jamaica Labor Party, came to power. So in a, in a political sense, you know, there's been a lot of stagnation and people are, are really fed up with politics in the, you know, in the government sense. Oliver, if you're considering a trip to the Caribbean, how is Jamaica distinct uh, from the other Caribbean islands? Which islands would be 
most similar that you might want to avoid for the sake of avoiding redundancy? Which islands would be good to pair it with? Well, I mean, you're asking the author of a travel book to Jamaica, so obviously mm. I'm I'm biased. Uh, but honestly, I've been to you know every large island in the Caribbean, and Jamaica is definitely unique. It's it's you know the Jamaican people will tell you because it's you know touched by Jah or touched by God. Uh, for me, it's just the vibrancy and the texture of the Jamaican culture. The national motto is out of many one people and and people just draw inspiration from this past and the past is very much alive in jamaica i'm sure that's the case in, on the other islands as well one of the things i always say that is great about jamaica is, is it's so small and you have such a diversity of places to go to diversity of restaurants music nightlife i mean basically whatever your idea of a perfect vacation is you can get in Jamaica because it's such a mature tourist economy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Oliver Hill, who writes the Moon Handbook to Jamaica. Let me just review a few basic things about traveling there. First of all, the the ethnic heritage. Is Jamaica just black slave heritage? Is that where the people come from? No. Actually, um, white people were slaves. Scots were slaves in Jamaica before Africans were slaves in Jamaica under the British. Indigenous Jamaicans are both white and black, is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, yes, Africans were brought to Jamaica um, to be enslaved, and English people were brought to Jamaica to be enslaved. Um, The Spanish supposedly discovered Jamaica, right, and they held it for a few years, but because they didn't have any gold, they weren't really interested in it to much of an extent. So when the African slave trade started, yeah, I mean, basically huge numbers of Africans were brought and from all over Africa, and it became a transshipment point for slaves coming to the U.S. Now, you've got a little bit on the language in your book. Is it a, it's a pidgin kind of English, or, or what are the language skills for Jamaica? Yeah, Patois is basically, uh, I think of it as a dialect. You have elements of Irish in it. I think the reason it's so difficult for me or somebody from outside Jamaica coming there, never hearing it before to understand it, it's very thick, and there's elements of Spanish in it. There's elements, like I say, of, of Irish accent, hmm. elements of African tongues. So it's to me, it's a beautiful language, and, and you have you know artists who really play on that. Is it printed in the newspapers, this, uh, this dialect? There is literature that's written in Patois, and mostly it's you know, literary figures who have kind of identified the language as an element of pride. Uh, in the newspapers that you read every day, maybe the cartoons might be in Patois, but generally okay. the newsprint is in proper English. Because uh, one of the charming things for me in Belize was buying the newspapers in Belize City that actually were printed in the in the pidgin English. What they do a lot in Jamaica is they'll use the uh, quotes. They'll put the quotes in Patois uh, when they're okay. quoting somebody. Tell me, let me hear a little bit of uh, the Jamaican English. Oh, I just understand Patois. I don't... What is that? I don't really speak Patois. <laughs> I guess um, one one thing that you try to do when you're going to a new country is, is catch on to little catchphrases, right? That they right. kind of uh, make you feel like you know more than you do. Right. So I, you can always say, Wagwan, uh, brethren. If somebody approaches you, you say, Wagwan, brethren. So basically, what's going on, brethren? Oh, say that slowly so I can hear the pigeon. Wagwan, Bridgen. 
They drive in the English side of the road, then, like the English people. Does that go back to their colonial heritage? Yeah, I guess it's one of those, you know, one of those things that is probably the first move the the British made in 1655 when they arrived in Jamaica is to make everybody drive their car on the other side of the road. You drive defensively by having your sword hand on the inside, they say. Exactly. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> radio at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. I'm speaking with Oliver Hill, the author of The Moon Handbook to Jamaica. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I am Colin Clement. I was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. I was born in Scandinavia in Scotland for 15 years. And I was born with Rick Steves. And that was Egyptian Arabic for My name is Colin Clement. I'm originally from Edinburgh, Scotland. But I live in Alexandria, Egypt, and I travel with Rick Steves. It's Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-RICK, and by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. We'll switch gears to the Middle Eastern desert land of Jordan in just a bit. Right now, Oliver Hill joins us from his office in Mexico City. He's just finished updating the Moon Handbook to Jamaica, and he'll clue us in on what's new. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're going to Jamaica. I'm joined by Oliver Hill on the phone from Mexico City, and Oliver is the author of The Moon Handbook to Jamaica. Oliver, in your book, you lay out different kinds of itineraries. You've got the Thrill Seekers Tour, the Spa Lovers Tour, and so on. Uh, When you're thinking of visiting Jamaica, as you mentioned, what is it, 150 miles by 50 miles, you can get anywhere within four hours by car. Uh, What advice do you give people in sorting through all the options to have the most interesting visit? It depends on what you're looking for in a vacation. A lot of people are so stressed out from their lifestyle in the U.S. or wherever they may live, that they just want to go and sit on the beach and have every possible worry taken care of. Other people visit a country to actually get to know its people, experience new places, experience new foods, new smells, new friendships. And I think if you're going to a country like Jamaica, you should at least get a taste for that. So if you're going there just because you're frazzled and stressed out and you just want to pamper yourself, you've got this spa lover's tour. Is Jamaica actually a place that does spas well compared to other places? What's so good about the spa circuit in Jamaica? Absolutely. I mean, Jamaica definitely has world-class spas. 
They are in some of the high-end hotels and they're in boutique hotels. And then you have, you know, spa a la Jamaican, where you have hot baths and you can go and take a hot bath at Bath, actually, in St. Thomas, where a slave came upon this natural hot bath and it's said to cure almost any ailment. So these are, these are mineral hot springs, natural hot springs. Yeah, and then they built a hotel. The government actually built a hotel and spa right at the base of them. So they basically pipe the water in, and you have jacuzzis and kind of Turkish-style tubs. And then there's a hotel and restaurant there. And it's that hotel is not the kind of sandals or the uh, you know, Red Lane Spa that you might consider as more of a world-class facility or at the Jamaica Inn or something where, where you have natural um, herb garden right there where they make all the treatments from. But it, it's just as worth going to, you know, even though you have to go along bad roads to get out the bath and you might need a spa treatment just to get over the bad roads. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely worth going to because then you also get this natural environment where there's a river coming down and there's these Rastas up there who insist on giving you the massage and the whole treatment. So that sounds like a pretty exotic, relaxing, uh, lush environmental and uh, personal experience at a Jamaican spa. Now you're all relaxed and you want some thrills. you got your, your Thrill Seekers tour. What are some of the sightseeing thrills you'd experience as you explore the island? Well, again, it depends on, on what you like. If you're a birder, there's amazing birding in the Blue Mountains. If you like hiking, there's great hiking and you won't see any other hikers. If you go on you know certain routes, even when you climb... Blue Mountain Peak, which is the highest peak in Jamaica, the way they do it generally is to get up really early in the morning and hike up for sunrise. That's a thrill in itself where you Hmm. see basically four parishes from Blue Mountain Peak. If you like windsurfing, there's white windsurfing. If you like kitesurfing, there's kitesurfing. There's zip lines over splendid waterfalls. There's touch the dolphins tours. There's sailing. I mean, basically, like I said, it's a mature tourist economy. Sounds so like a, it sounds any, like a playground, much like uh, Costa Rica has a lot of that kind of stuff, too, and it's just very popular with visitors. Tell me more about those zip lines past the waterfalls. Well, actually, one of my favorite organized waterfall experiences in, in Jamaica is Wyas Falls. And just uh, early last year, I believe, they installed a zip line, and it's one of the longest zip lines I've seen, and it's down a whole series of falls. The people who, who run that tour and that site, that attraction, they, they really do it right. Unfortunately, some of the other falls, you know, haven't been developed as nicely, and some of them use a lot of concrete and kind of mm. disturb yeah. the natural environment rather than make it more beautiful, which is what's been done at Wyeth Falls. And exactly describe a zip line. It's, what is it, on a cable, and then you've got like on a pulley and a swing, and you go zipping with the power of gravity gradually through the jungle, or what? Yeah, basically they uh, make a platform on two trees, one at the bottom of the falls and, and one at the top, and then run a cable between it, and you basically zip down the cable. And then you use a hand with a glove on it to, to break. Oh, you actually one. break with your own hand. Exactly. All right. Now, what are the must-do experiences? Let's say I'm going to Jamaica for my first time. You're my guide. Do you want to make sure I experience the cuisine and drinks and exotic food or, or whatever? What would you have on the short list of, of things we've just got to experience? Well, basically what I did with Moon Handbook's fifth edition that I, I finished last year is I tried to give anybody the tools that they need to experience Jamaica in the way they want to. I'm just going to assume, because you're a traveled guy, 
that you are looking for thrills and looking for excitement. So I would recommend landing in Montego Bay and checking out some of the better restaurants in town and going to some great houses. These are old plantation houses where, you know, the master of the plantation lived, and that gives you a real chance to go back in time and kind of understand better the formation of the Jamaican culture. And then I would recommend Pelican Bar where you go out in a little fishing boat out to this sandbar where there's this ramshackle restaurant and bar and where you just snorkel around all day and eat fish and drink beer. And then I would take you to YS Falls, like I just mentioned. Appleton Estate is right there near YS Falls. The thing is, Rick, is is I could go on and on. I haven't even gotten to the beaches, you know, where I could take you to the beach where they filmed Dr. No, which most tourists have never been to and, and don't even know about. And it's right next to Ocho Rios. And would you do most of that with a home base in Montego Bay or something like this? Depends what your um, hotel arrangements are, basically. I would I would recommend a couple of days on one side. It depends how long your stay is, obviously. Right. And an ideal scenario, say, like the 10-day tour, you know, best of the best yep. in 10 days. I would probably recommend, you know, two or three different bases over those 10 days so that your daily outings aren't exhausting. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're going to Jamaica. I'm joined by Oliver Hill on the phone from Mexico City, and Oliver is the author of The Moon Handbook to Jamaica. Uh, Barry emailed us from Corvallis, Oregon, and asks, how much has Jamaica changed over the last 20 years? He was down in uh, the Negril Yacht Club and really enjoyed the lobster there, Mon. Uh, has it changed a lot in 20 years? Jamaica has changed. You know, I guess whether it's for the better or for the worse, that's arguable. When tourism began in Jamaica in full force, it's been a tourist destination basically for the rich and famous since the early 1900s, thanks to the banana trade and certain Hollywood luminaries who decided it was it was a cool place to be. But in the past 20 years, it's really developed. I mean, Negril, we were speaking about Negril and all the hustling that's going on there. Negril is still a great place to go, but 20, 30 years ago, it was a fishing village. Huh. And now you have, you know, more and more huge hotels. I suppose it was really popularized by the whole reggae music thing and Bob Marley, wasn't it, for more, um, you know, backpacker kind of crowd and younger travelers? Exactly. If you talk to old Jamaicans, they'll tell you, you know, people used to come here with their friends, you know, a whole troop of them rent some motorcycles and just go across the island with a little backpack and sleep on the beach and, you know, get fish from the fishermen, that kind of thing. And as I think it had to, to face the realities of our modern world, Jamaica caught on to tourism as yeah. as a major source of national income. And Nicole is on the line from Dallas. Uh, Nicole, thanks for calling. Hi there. Hi, got a question for Oliver? I do, and I, I'm going to sound like the biggest party pooper after, after listening to all this great stuff. Um, my experience on Jamaica sort of consisted of being ensconced at somebody's house for a week in the grill. But he started to talk a lot about crime in that area, and I was just wondering how crime, or even if it's just perception of crime, has impacted the tourism industry there. Well, I think it's mostly, as you say, um, perception. I think you have to be careful, just like anywhere you go in the world when you're traveling abroad, you have to be aware, and you have to be aware that, you know, especially in a place like Negril, which has become Jamaica's prime tourist destination thanks to that seven-mile beach, you have to understand that Negril attracts people from all over Jamaica 
looking to come make money off tourists. So Negril can be a beautiful place, and there's amazing places to find solitude and get back to nature, even in Negril. If you stay in a hotel on the cliffs, you might not even want to leave your hotel because it's so beautiful. But crime is definitely a part of the reality in Jamaica. I mean, there are uh, an extraordinary number of murders uh, in Jamaica for the size of the population, but I've never actually seen a gun out in Jamaica. And I've seen a lot of guns in my life, and maybe I've seen the police have guns, but, you know, it's, I don't feel unsafe going anywhere in Jamaica. I am a man, and I am, you know, a young man. I'm not going around throwing money around, but I basically, you know, be careful, and, and I try to remain conscious of, of my surroundings and where I am. Thanks for your call, Nicole. Thank you. Oliver, I, I saw a very powerful movie called Life and Debt, and it made a pretty powerful expose about the reality of the visitors, which is not the reality of the people, and then, you know, behind the resort action. Uh, and that's something that we really... Uh, you made a movie similar on the same sort of theme, didn't you, about economic realities of life in Jamaica? Well, the film I made, Coping with Babylon, it's more of the story, the contemporary story of Rastafari. Where is the Rastafarian culture at today? And what are the different groups that make up the Rastafarian culture? So basically it was taking this concept of Babylon, which obviously goes back to the Old Testament, and adapting it as Rastafarians do to modern life. What are the aspects in the world today that they adhere to, and what is it that they fight against? And this was obviously, you know, Babylon to them is this uh, city of excess, the symbolic city of greed and money over materialism, over spirituality and the things that actually matter. I was just listening to a Ziggy Marley song in the lyrics, even the poor man is rich, right? Exactly. Then that's what I was saying earlier by, you know, the different realities people can live in Jamaica. For some people, it's the most stressful country in the world. And here I am painting this picture of, you know, sun and beaches and, and butterflies and hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just have to use common sense, I suppose. I mean, you were writing about how taxis in some districts don't even stop at red lights because it's dangerous to be stopped after dark in some areas. They roll slowly through the red lights. Right. I mean, that's that's very much the same um, justification for running red lights that we use here in Mexico. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know in, in how many instances there's actually real danger or if we just want to you just feel better not get stopping. Get a move on at night. <laughs> Let's get a move on. All right. Now, if you're just out on the beach and uh, you're obviously hanging out at a rich resort and so on, are there hustlers that are coming in and trying to sell you things as you're trying to just to relax in the sun? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing about Negril is, is Seven Mile Beach is it can be the biggest turnoff because, you know, Jamaican hustlers, they know when you're green and they know when <laughs> you've heard from a few hustlers already. And they know when you're just, you know, a rock and you don't even, nothing phases you anymore. You know, you have to be firm and you have to be confident and you have to understand that, you know, we know that money doesn't grow on trees, but in Jamaica, some people think it does. And I've had people say, give me two U.S., you know, give me two dollars. And it's just like a demand, as if I owed somebody two dollars for something. And we have to realize that, you know, a lot of people in Jamaica don't have the opportunities we do. And you have to take those kind of approaches with a grain of salt. Huh. From reading your book, it sounds like the, uh, a great night scene is the, the street dances, like in Kingston. Describe a street dance. What's the deal there? It's, it's basically entertainment for the masses. 
all it takes is a sound system, you know, a, a DJ or a disc jockey um, who comes and, and brings the music. And then they set it up wherever they want to. And in the early evening, you might have a couple of people hanging out. And then by, you know, 2 in the morning, you're getting a little bit more of a crowd. And by 4 or 5 in the morning, it's just the street is packed. And, you know, the cars have a tough time getting through at 7 or 8 in the morning when, when the normal business day starts. That must be quite an experience for a traveler to take part in. Absolutely, and and the the Japanese have have definitely discovered that aspect of Jamaica. You can't go to a street dance in, in Kingston without seeing Japanese tourists enjoying yeah. it. And it's it's um, unfortunate that more people don't enjoy that because it's really a free environment where people shun violence, and it's really a safe place to be. Even though many of these street dancers are in the middle of the ghetto, if they're in the literal ghetto, you'll probably want to go there with somebody local, uh, but, you know, I've I've never been hassled. I'm hassled much less at a street dance in the heart of downtown Kingston than I am walking along the beach in the grill. Well, I like that phrase, the more dances, the less crime is, right? Exactly. So the police actually recognize that, that this is a, a safety valve where people can let off some steam and get out and celebrate and enjoy the good parts of life even if they're not wealthy. Yeah, but the Babylon them lock off the dance enough time. Say that again? Police tend to lock off the dance when they want to, and, and, you know, if they're not getting their pay or whatever, for whatever reason, they will definitely shut down a dance. So okay. it's, not, it's not necessarily free from police, but I'm saying amongst the crowd, you're not going to find any problems. I mean, everybody just wants to check out how people are dressed and how people are dancing, what kind of moves they got, what kind of bling they got. That must that's, be a that's, fun that's scene. So anybody who wants to, with a little common sense, can enjoy the the late night dance street dance scene, especially in well, in the big cities, Kingston mainly, huh? Yeah, uh, Montego Bay doesn't really have that same kind of street dance culture. Right. They they try to, and they do like a street dance night. I think now at the brewery, but it's hard to replicate this. People who make a priority this kind of enjoyment and dancing and the latest dance is you know big thing. Have you learned the latest dance? <laughs> and the latest talk, too. It's a very current culture. They want to keep current. And the most prolific music recording industry on the planet, in this small little island, the big music from the Little Rock. And people really, you know, grab onto that. Wow. And it's the same with the dancing and with the talk. You know, patwa is an, an evolving language, and, and people come out with the new talk, you know. Oliver, if you could sum it up and just, like, put any photo of any image of any event, of any happening on the cover of your book to really sum up Jamaica for a visitor, what would it be and why? You don't like the uh, little gazebo at the end of the dock? The little gazebo on the end of the dock looks pretty peaceful compared to a street dance. Do you like that? Well, I mean, I I think it's an attractive image and it's neutral. Um, It's a safe I think a lot of people who go to Jamaica wouldn't feel comfortable at a street dance. While personally I think that's sad, I think People need to know that you know there's plenty of environments for you to be, feel comfortable in in Jamaica and feel great. In fact, all right. So Jamaica can offer really what you're looking for if you know where to find it. Exactly. I mean, to me, there really is nothing better than than the idea of you know waking up in the morning and that sunshine and humidity start rising and you smell the lushness and going outside and climbing the mango tree and knocking a mango down and eating it and not having too much else to worry about. Sounds Jamaican to me. Hey, Oliver Hill, author of Moon Handbook to Jamaica, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks for having me. 
seem like a fish in the sea all the time. And if that's what it takes to be free, I don't mind. Still, still moving to me. Next, we'll learn about one of the Middle East's most accessible destinations, Jordan, with Tan and Lolly Aran. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number. And we welcome your email questions and comments at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're heading to modern Jordan, an ancient Petra. It's a little country squeezed between Iraq, Syria, and Israel. It's got an American queen and some of the best ancient sites in all of the Middle East. It's Jordan. I'm joined by a couple of guides from Turkey who take groups through Jordan and know just where we can go to find the wonders of that little country. Tan and Lali Aran joining us from Istanbul. How are you doing? Hi, Hi. Good, Rick. Thank you. Why would somebody go to Jordan? Well, in your studies in the high school, in the secondary school, I am sure things that you read about places in the history lessons back there, some of them are in Jordan now. Such as? Petra, or the things mentioned in the Bible took place, River of Jordan, yeah, Jericho. The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. Let's talk about those. Petra is the most famous. What is Petra? Petra is a sand city in the middle of the Jordan Desert. It is huge, and it's spectacular, and it has become famous, I can say, within the last 20 years. It was in the Indiana Jones film. Oh, that's the Indiana Jones yes, images. Yes, that yes, It's sort of a rosy sandstone yes. cave dwellings. How old is it? It is about actually 3,000 years old, but what people get to see when they go there is about 2,000 years old. Okay. So, Ton, when you take somebody to Petra, how do you uh, explain the place? How do I explain the place? We get local guides to do that. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and what does the local it's, guide... It's, it's magical. It's really is magical. We're not just talking about the Roman history. We're talking about local cultures at the same time, uh, the kind of cultures you've never heard about, uh, Nabataeans and all that. These are not very common in uh, the Western world. But the story is uh, we just take people there to uh, show the, the magical atmosphere. What's magical about it? Uh, think of different colored rocks. From red to green, all kinds of deposits and gorgeous man-made facades built into that rock. You walk through a gallery of, say, a couple of kilometers, more or about, less? About two miles. About mm-hmm. two miles. You walk through that, and as you pass that threshold, you're in front of a beautiful facade, a man-made facade called Treasury. Hmm. It's not easy to describe with the The Indiana words. Jones scene. It's the Indiana Jones yeah, image. It's the Indiana. Okay, so this is a, a city, basically, that's many centuries old. Yes. And it has this mystical sort of ambiance. Yes. And you know what's most fascinating about Nabataeans and Petra? It's very easy for somebody to think that why would people live in the middle of the desert there? What did they do? How did they get their water? What was their motive to be there? But you have to think in ancient means. Once upon a time, Nabataeans that lived in Petra controlled the incense trade. Incense? Incense trade, yes. Huh. Incense trade, which does not make much sense to a modern man at the moment, but it was such a crucial thing back in the past. Like frankincense and myrrh? Yes, frankincense and myrrh. We always hear those. And That was a big think, industry. It was a big industry. And you say, what are these things? Those three magicians gave them to Jesus, offered them, but for what? What are they? But back in those days, frankincense, it was more valuable than gold is. Why? 
because it was used in the ritual rites in mm -hmm. Egypt and in the temples around the Mediterranean, the incense, and uh, it was used by Egyptians for embalming. Oh, very important. Very important. Very valuable, very, very precious. When you imagine that in 300 BC, there were approximately 7 million Egyptians waiting in line to be mummified one day. You need a lot of frankincense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm talking with Tan and Lali Aran. We're talking about modern Jordan. We've got Adam on the line from Seattle, Washington. Hi, Adam. Thanks for your call. Got a question or a comment for Tan and Lali? Uh, yes, I have a question. Um, what are the must-see sites in Jordan, and are there any hidden gems that you can recommend that are off the normal beat path? So what would you say the top four or five sites to see, are activities or are things on your checklist, other than Petra, of course, which is everybody's first choice? The Wadi Room. Wadi Room is Wadi room, definitely. high on the list. Now, that's a desert, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is a desert. Sort of like the Grand Canyon. Red-colored desert. Okay, so you got a big Grand Canyon, Wadi Room. What else? And uh, not only go there, you need to do a jeep safari or a camel safari in the Wadi Room as you get there. And probably stay in a uh, camp. In a Bedouin camp. Bedouin. And in a Bedouin camp. So these are like desert nomadic. Desert camps, and exactly. They, and tourists can have this experience. Yes, but mm. of course, the facilities are very, very, very limited. But for the experience, it's worth to go through it. You'll freeze. <laughs> You'll freeze. <laughs> yeah, it's the desert. It's very hot in the day, very cold in the night. Okay, so that's one. What's another uh, must-see attraction? Uh, the Dead Sea. And why? B because you go below the sea level. It's You don't feel... Actually, it's not an interesting feeling, but going down to the sea level... There are very few places in the world you can do that, and going down to the Dead Sea, it's one of them. And do people still float on the sea? Yes, you can float in the sea. There are beaches that you can go, and you can't really swim, but float on the Dead Sea. You can do that. It's an experience I recommend. I'll never forget reading my magazine on the Dead Sea, floating. It's, you're so buoyant, you can actually read without exactly, paddling. Exactly, exactly. You don't need or a mattress. Or have a cup of coffee with you or a cup of tea. You just enjoy it while no, you're no floating. No air mattress necessary. Not necessarily. And don't forget, you're way below the sea level. Right. And if you have a little cut and you step into that salty sea, you feel it. <laughs> Definitely, you do. You feel it. Okay, so the Dead Sea, that's a so fun don't experience. shave your legs before you go there. So what do we, we got? We got Petra, which is the uh, Indiana Jones city. We've got a, sort of a safari into the Grand Canyon Desert, the mm -hmm. Wadi Room. We've got the Dead Sea. What else would be? To go to Mount Nebo, when I translate into English, it would translate as... Prophet's Mountain. Prophet's Mountain. Ah. Uh, there is this mountain called Mount Nebo, and you can drive up to Mount Nebo and stay at one particular point where it's believed that Moses stood one day and God showed them the promised land. Wow. You can practically go there, stand at the same point, and just look around. That's an experience important to me because even today, after so many centuries of this event, people or Middle East or the world still is rotating around what happened. The Middle East, it's just moving the stones. Century after century, century they're hashing out the same problems. You just go there, stand there, just look around and try to understand, try to feel the same thing. So we've got Petra, which is the rosy sandstone, Indiana Jones mm -hmm. sort of wonderland. We've got the Wadi Room, that is the uh, Grand Canyon kind of desert. Uh, we've got the Dead Sea, where you can bob like a cork. Mm -hmm. What if you, you've got the Red Sea instead of the Dead Sea, right? Now, that would be the resort the area. Aqaba, yes, the Aqaba area. Now, is that Egypt or Jordan? Well, Egypt also has a coastline to the Red Sea, and actually Egypt's coastline to the Red Sea is much greater than what Jordan has. Jordan has a tiny bit of the coastline on the Red Sea. But they do have a resort yes, there. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be there? What, why do people go there? Mm, Red Sea has a very rich marine life, and that's the main drive for people to travel there, especially if they're scuba divers or even if they dive with a snorkel. 
The marine life is very rich, very colorful, and fun to see. There are very good resorts. Most are newly built, so when you compare them to resorts around the Mediterranean, they're not as worn out. If you want comfort, I recommend that you go five-star. On the Red Sea. You would want to choose a good five-star resort because in the other ones that are rated as four or three, the service may be very disappointing. If you drop your hat into the Red Sea, what happens? It gets wet. You're right. That's the joke. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Adam, there's some uh, interesting sites for you in Jordan. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for your call. And it's got me fast. I didn't know any of this uh, attractions of Jordan. Karen in uh, Lansing, Michigan. Hi, Karen. I love your show, both on TV and the radio. <laughs> Thanks very much. Do you have a comment or a question for Tan and Lolly about Jordan? Uh, yes, I have a question. Um, with regard to female travelers to Jordan, what um, type of like cultural missteps or, or faux pas type of things should we avoid when in Jordan? Maybe I can go ahead and answer this question easily. Mm-hmm. I'm a female, although I am Turkish, When I'm in my uh, traveling outfit, I look very American. Mm -hmm. And I can easily tell you that the men in Jordan are very respectful towards women. They keep their distance and they don't get into the personal comfort area of a female individual. They respect this. And if you respect it back for them, you won't have any difficulties traveling through Jordan. Now, you know, Peter Greenberg has a quote. He wrote, Jordan is one of the safest places I know. And the Jordan website, I noticed on their homepage, they print this as if people are worried about safety in Jordan. Uh, What is your experience as tour guides in Jordan? I did not hesitate about my safety even for one moment any time in Jordan. The law is very serious there. They take it seriously. Is that right? Uh, Yes. So there's strict law and order. Strict law and... um, Swift. Actually... Law uh, crime. (laughs) Swift. Very law crime. Almost no crime. crime. Almost no crime in the country. All the criminals have been executed. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now they've got... I didn't say that. You didn't say that. Okay. Now, they were famous for having uh, an American queen, right? That's the the widow of uh, King Hussein, Queen Mm -hmm. Noor. Mm -hmm. And she's still in Jordan? She has a palace still in Jordan, but I'm not sure if she constantly lives there or not. And there's a new queen... uh, Rania. ...who's quite westernized, I understand. Yes, she's Palestinian. Okay. Now, what, how are Americans received? They've got a Palestinian queen, uh, a former American queen. What's it like for an American to be in Jordan? It is comfortable because they are really familiar with the American culture. Their current king, Abdullah, if he speaks English to you, you can think that he's an American. So it's quite Western-facing. It's quite Western facing. It is quite Western-facing. It is quite modern. Cities are modern. Facilities are modern. Hotels are sleek. Service is very good. But at the same time, it's a religious government, isn't it? Isn't it, it is a, a religious government? government, but religion is not imposed. Like, you can have alcohol if you want to. So or, how does that compare with other countries in the region from an from a Orthodox Muslim? Well, when you say other countries in the region, um, in Egypt, religious laws are not imposed on individuals as well. So Saudi in, Arabia is the... Saudi Arabia is the extreme end of it, where okay. religious laws are imposed on people. But in Jordan, they are not. In Syria, they are not. And if people choose to be religious, it's mostly their choice. Giselle wrote us from uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and asks, what's the best way to go from Jordan to side trip into Jerusalem? Is that something that's uh, reasonable to do? I have never done that trip. 
at the end of the trips we did, which ended in Amman, some people chose to do that and they told me, wrote me back and said that they did not have any difficulties going from one country to the other, but I didn't experience it myself. You can go from Jordan into Israel now with yes. the yes. Jordanian yes. stamp on your passport? What, yes. what you don't want to do is uh, put Syria and Israel into the same trip. Oh, going right? from Jordan to Israel or vice versa huh. is no problem. Is it and still you'll the case? probably hear a few more questions at the customs check, and that's okay. it. But that's is it, it still the case if you're in Israel, should you not get an Israeli stamp on your passport to go to Jordan? Or That doesn't matter. Doesn't that matter doesn't matter it's anymore. for Syria. Jordan is in good terms with Israel. Oh, for Syria. So you don't want to have an Israeli Israel stamp. Is to go to Syria. To go to Syria. On the same trip. I mean, okay. you might have a Israeli stamp uh, from two years ago. Okay. No, no, on the same passport. Uh, on, uh, that's what I'm saying. Okay, because uh, I, I remember once going from Israel to Syria, and they stamped a piece of paper and put it in my passport. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't put the Israeli stamp in my passport. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's still the case. Karen, does that give you some ideas? It does. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. And Bill from Beaverton, Oregon. Hi, Bill. Hi. Thanks for your call. Do you have a question about Jordan? Yes, I do. I guess you've covered it a little bit here. Uh, I know we've had a very positive image of uh, Jordan's government and monarchy of the past, and uh, I was interested in their current government, and uh, maybe in addition to that, uh, something about the currencies that we uh, might use when we'd come there. When talking about spending money, you can easily spend American dollars in Jordan without any problem. I paid restaurants in dollars and shops in dollars. I could use it wherever I felt necessary. As a tour guide, when you're paying things for your group, do you, do you get Jordanian currency? I change into Jordanian currency, but if I ran short of the Jordanian currency, I could use U.S. dollars wherever it was necessary. There's not much difference uh, between the change offices. So you can, from one end to the other end, uh, you'll probably get the same rate if you go to a change office. In other words, and change offices are very common in the country. So uh, you might want to have some local currency and not deal with uh, the American currency. You're probably better off in the markets using the local currency, I would think. Uh, with the local currency, everything is in local currency. I mean, they're, they're okay with their currency in the, in the country. So uh, if you have some uh, Jordanian dinars, it's going to be much, um, much better. But if your Jordanian dinars finish faster than you expected, you can easily use the American money. Pull out the dollars. Now, the capital city of Amman, I don't hear much about that from a tourism point of view. Is that worth uh, working into your itinerary? We definitely go to Amman in each trip because it's convenient to go there. Accommodations are easy and comfortable, and that's the place you can fly in and out of Jordan. Isn't the museum with the Dead Sea Scrolls actually in Jordan? It is in Jordan. It's in Amman, in the center of the old town. Seeing the Dead Sea Scrolls is fascinating, and the museum is very nice. But if you're not familiar with the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're just looking at all shriveled, dark-colored things. What do they look like, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Old, dark, shriveled things. So it's just darkened, uh, what was it made on? Uh, Animal skin. Animal skin. Animal skin, yes. All right, but found in a cave Mm -hmm. over the Dead Sea. Yes. Mm -hmm. And now uh, residing in a museum in Amman. Yes, they are. So Bill was talking about the government. Uh, They've got a a king and a queen. Is that who runs, calls the shot, or is that a a ceremonial position and they have a modern parliament? No, they rule. They rule. So this is your medieval kingdom. That's kingdom. That's a kingdom. That's a kingdom. All right. So, Bill, they got a kingdom. Long live the king. Kiss the king's ring and uh, take photos uh, only where you're supposed to. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Uh-huh. What about the food, Tan and Lali? Uh, we're talking about Jordan, by the way. I'm with Tan and Lali Aran, who are tour guides in Jordan. Uh, what are the highlights for people who visit Jordan? What should they look out for when it comes to enjoying the cuisine? It's very limited, the cuisine. 
Uh, it basically is Lebanese, and uh, there's lots of Syrian food in the Jordanian cuisine. Well, it's basically the repetition of the same thing. Like hummus is repeated all the time. Uh, they got their salads, which is uh, pretty typical uh, everywhere you go. Actually, you, uh, lots of rice, lots of rice and bulgur, lamb, lamb. What do they have for breakfast? It's very similar to the Turkish breakfast, which is they have cheeses, olives, butter, jam, bread, and yogurt. And with your groups that you've taken to Jordan, have people stayed healthy or do they have some intestinal adjustments? Stayed healthy? It's, well, maybe it's a little bit because of us. The two of us are extremely picky on the food that we provide to our travelers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes travelers joke about us and say that you're like a general in an army and controlled on what we're eating. So you're trying to keep them healthy by being careful yeah. of what they eat. Yes. They're trying to give you the best of what they got. But uh, you go into the old town, for instance, you find a fruit shop and they uh, squeeze beautiful oranges for you and uh, mix it with bananas and uh, mixtures like that. It's mm. beautiful. That's what they call a vitamin shop, something mm -hmm. like that. It's unbelievable. Go off the tourist track. Uh, for instance, if you're in Amman, Amman is not a very attractive city, but when you go to the downtown of Amman, there's lots of opportunities to meet with the people, to uh, try the real cuisine of uh, Jordan, which is, uh, I don't think, very attractive. But, uh, you know, there's lots of great uh, delicacies out there. You may want to give it a try. And as a tour guide, if you're trying to keep your, your groups healthy, what's the main thing? That's no do? option. That's no option when you go this direction. You suffer from... Uh, you get a little diarrhea. Yeah, you get a little... <laughs> okay. yeah, that's adjustment. That's what okay, we call adjustment. It runs its course. I'm speaking with Tan and Lali Aran. We're talking about Jordan. Tan and Lali, I, I'm fascinated by this Wadi Rum, this desert which is cold at night. It's like a Grand Canyon. And you stay with Bedouins there. You actually go on a camel ride. or Paint a picture for me. Give me the magic Jordanian experience in the desert. Going to Wadi Rum, it's like a mystical experience. The color of the desert is hard to describe. It's rose red and the sand is extremely fine. There are sand dunes and rock formations that look like lunar. I haven't been to the moon at all, but I can describe them as lunar, especially during the sunset with the long shadows. It's extremely beautiful. And to understand more of the beauty of the desert, you have to go away from the visitor center where the modern roads take you. You can do this either on a jeep or on a camel, depending on your time. If you have a longer time, you can do a camel safari. On a shorter time, you can do a jeep safari. You can do these even without staying in the Wadi Room. But if you have time and stay overnight in the Wadi Room, staying in desert is mystical and so peaceful. It is so silent. The stars are brighter than anywhere else they can be. It's cold. It is very cold. And the morning of the desert, there's this... It's not haze. It's this, the, the, this morning color of the sky, the morning color over the sand. The shadow, the longer shadow of the camels as they silently walk on this fine sand, they're just mystical, mystical, mystical. Wow. Mystical, mystical, mystical. Fascinating opportunity to travel in Jordan. Tan and Lali Aran, thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners, to send your email questions for Rick, and to submit an original haiku for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's all in the radio section at ricksteves.com.
Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America, plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.